Hey friends, my name is Kyle. I get to be one of the pastors at our Orange Campus and I am thrilled to be with you this weekend for our last weekend in our Unshakable Hope series. Just a couple weeks ago, I was on a Zoom call with actually quite a few people. It was during the National Day of Prayer Week and so we were just all together on Zoom praying for our cities and our counties and our country. And another pastor on the call was leading us through a time And he asked this question, he said, what kind of story are you writing in this season? What are you gonna be remembered for? And it really stopped me, not just in that moment, but it's something that stayed with me these last couple weeks. What's gonna be written about us as Christians, as the church in this time? And more importantly, what's gonna be written about you? What's gonna be written about you by, by your spouse or by your kids, by your family, by your neighbors, by your friends? Because there's one thing that's, that's for certain, and that is we are actually living in a time of profound history. The history books are gonna record this moment in a powerful way. Years from now, our kids and our grandkids are gonna be reading about the COVID-19 crisis of 2020. And undoubtedly, they're gonna capture uh, all the shopping trends that took place over this time, the run on toilet paper in the first few weeks, and how that transitioned into the run on cleaning supplies, and then how that became the run on hair dye and clippers as our families turned into barbers and stylists for all of us. And how the face mask became the, the must-have fashion accessory of 2020. And as the history books write that, they're also gonna capture the powerful part of this season, which is the entire world kind of ground to a halt. All of a sudden, the human race as we knew it just kind of paused in this time and in this season. We faced an enemy that we couldn't overwhelm, we, we couldn't overpower on our own strength or with our own resources. There was no quick fix, no easy answers. It seems like every day there was new information and still is coming our way that contradicts what we heard just a week or two ago. And it leads us to this place of confusion and crisis. And so all of us become kind of united in this one phrase, I don't know. When you ask a question, when you're trying to find an answer, it's I don't know. How long is this gonna last? I don't know. What was the cause? I don't know. How is this gonna impact us next year, next month, in 10 years? I don't know. And so that I don't know became a profound expression in this time. But what if, in that unified I don't know, what if that's where hope is actually found in this season and in this time? Not in this life of pride where we can overwhelm the circumstances of life with our resources or with our wisdom or with our intellect or with answers, but what if hope is actually found in the humility of I don't know? What if this is where all of us unite around that? And so I just wanna invite you guys to go on this journey with me today. As we look at a, at a powerful biblical story of a man who had everything, he went from this prideful point in life of being able to overwhelm everything to an I don't know of humility, and it changed his life. So take this divine invitation on this journey with me as we find unshakable hope in a life of humility. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter four. If not, this is a great moment. You can just push pause. Go find a Bible around your house, grab your technology, and look at Daniel chapter four. And while you guys uh, are looking that up, I wanna give you a little context about what's taken place, where we are because of the first three chapters. 
you're going to see there's a couple main characters. The first one is Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. He is the most powerful person on the planet at this time. He had been setting out to just conquer the entire world, and he was doing a pretty good job at it. And you see that in the first three chapters, his ability to to control the world. And you'll see that one of the territories that he conquers is Judah, and that's where God's people were. And we know that Daniel and three of his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, perhaps you've heard of them, they're taken captive and placed in the king's palace. And for extra credit, you can read about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter three. You'll see some powerful things about Nebuchadnezzar and pride and humility and them. But getting back to the story, we know that Nebuchadnezzar, he has dreams. God talks to him in dreams that he can't interpret. And God has given Daniel the ability to interpret dreams. And so at a couple different points, including this one in chapter four, Daniel comes to Nebuchadnezzar and And Nebuchadnezzar shares his dream, and Daniel interprets it, and he says, Nebuchadnezzar, it's not good news. Unfortunately, things are going to go bad. You're going to lose everything that you have, your entire kingdom. You're going to find yourself alone. You're going to go crazy. You're going to have to live outside with the animals like an animal. And all of this is going to take place unless and until you acknowledge that God is the creator and the owner and the provider and the gracious ruler of everything. So that's where we pick up the story. Daniel chapter 4, verse 28. It says, all of this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? You get a sense in there, there's so many I's and me's and my's just rolling off of his tongue, and it gives us a clue to his thinking, which actually the last sentence makes crystal clear, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Nebuchadnezzar is putting on display a life of pride. He is saying, this is all by me and this is all for me. A life of pride says, this is all by me and this is all for me. He's walking out on the rooftop, looking out at the landscape of his life, this incredible palace, one of many. He's probably on a hill overlooking the city lights at that time, and he's taking a deep breath and just saying, look at what I've done. Look at what I've built. Look at what I did. I made this. I own this. I conquered this. I deserve this. And you can feel it in his speech. And here's the thing, there's a little Nebuchadnezzar in all of us. We all can find ourselves looking back at our life or maybe even looking at our life today or looking out thinking, I did this. I'm amazing. I'm powerful. I'm great. Look at what I have done. There's a little Nebuchadnezzar in all of us. Reminded me of the story of this this man interacting with God, and and he comes before God, and this man comes to God, and he looks up and he says, God, I can do anything that you can do. I can even create a person. I have enough intelligence and enough science and enough wisdom and enough power. I can do anything, and God looks at him and he says, great, go ahead, why don't you do that? So the man takes God up on that. He reaches down, 
grabs a handful of dirt, and God says, no, 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 no. Get your own dirt. About two people in here laughed at that as well, so maybe it deserves a smile. But either way, it shows the posture that we have with God. We start to think, I did this, I made this, I own this. God, I can do anything you can do. And where does that get us? We know where that gets us. Any of you like to be around incredibly prideful people? Any of you like to be around people that just believe that they own the world and everyone else is subject to them in it? Pride is what separates us from one another. Pride is what separates us from God. Pride leaves us alone and lonely. Pride, ultimately, things just run through our fingers and we end up sad and broken. Pride ultimately gets us into these prisons, not just of loneliness, but even of fear, of losing things. We develop a mindset of scarcity, thinking that it's gonna run out because on your strength and on your power and on your wisdom, it will. We end up in prisons of fear and shame and guilt. And that's what we see here with Nebuchadnezzar. It says instantly in that moment, the Bible says it was before he even finished his sentence of pride that this dream that Daniel had interpreted for him was fulfilled. Everything was stripped from him. He was out in the fields living alone among the animals. You can imagine the loss and the loneliness and sadness. You can imagine the people that were looking so confused, many of them probably mocking and rebuking him, some of them maybe even feeling sorry for him. But the loneliness and the isolation and the fear, the struggle to survive and endure the confusion and the crisis that had set in, it was like his own little personal coronavirus, his own little COVID crisis that happened, and it lasted seven years. And you may be thinking, well, why this? Why was this, the, the consequences? Why seven years? Well, because that's how long it took. Took for what? Well, look at verse 34, chapter four. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I, I raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High, I honored and glorified him who lives forever. You see, that's how long it took for him to raise his eyes towards heaven. That's how long it took for him to acknowledge God. That's how long it took for him to see the hope and humility as opposed to pride. You see, if pride is defined by it's all by me and it's all for me, humility is defined by it's all by you and it's all for you. And he acknowledged in that moment, God, it is all by you, it is all for you. The biblical word for humility there is about bowing down, it's about stooping, it's about being low. And when he raised his eyes towards heaven, he realized that he was low and that God was king of all. He acknowledged God as the creator and also as good and powerful and loving. And see, some of you may see this uh, a little heavy-handed. I know that I did for a long time. I would look at God and view this as, why would he do that to somebody? Why would he even allow that to happen, this, this loss and this sadness and this pain and this confusion? But this isn't a story of punishment and consequence. This is a story of God's love and God's grace 
You see, for thousands of years, countless generations, we have seen God display his grace over and over to his people. From the very beginning with Adam and Eve, we know that he created man and woman. We know that he designed everything to be beautiful and perfect and in relationship. And what did Adam and Eve do? Just like that man, they said, I can be like God. Pride, the root of sin, set into motion all the evil and sadness and brokenness in this world. But what did God do with Adam and Eve? He extended grace. He didn't do away with them because they made a mistake. He gave them a path out into relationship with him and with one another once again. And we see that over and over. That's what God does all through his word. He's extending grace and kindness and love to redeem and restore the relationship that he so desperately wants with you and with me and that he wants us to have with one another. And so we see this, God loving and pursuing and inviting and welcoming and extending grace. We had already seen it in Nebuchadnezzar's life prior to this moment. Remember, just the chapter before, you're gonna read it for extra credit. You're gonna see that after God provides and protects Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in that fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar's like, oh my gosh, your God is the most loving, powerful God on earth. And then just a chapter later, he forgets that. And he doesn't walk in humility, he walks in pride, saying, look what I did, look what I did. And not only that, even after Daniel interprets his dream, it's 12 months, God gives him 12 months to say, God, you're right, you are God. I'm gonna humble myself before you. It's not by me and for me, it is by you and it is for you. And over and over we see God's love and his grace and his kindness and we see it in action once again even in this story. Look at verse 36. At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles, they sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, I praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all of his ways are just. Look at what God did. Love, grace, kindness, restoring everything, and even more. Humility brings grace. God, it is all by you and it is all for you and God responds with grace and love and forgiveness and kindness. And look at this last sentence. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. What if this season of crisis and confusion, what if this season of of loss? What if this season of COVID is actually a divine invitation to humility? What it's actually a, a divine invitation to the hope that we have in humbling ourselves before God? To walk in humility, to, to say, God, this is all by you and for you versus pride. It's, it's by me and it's for me and I'm gonna take a hold of my own story. What if this is the time we say this is by you and for you? We acknowledge God as the creator, as the owner, as the provider, as the giver of everything we have, everything on this planet, including the breath that we take. What if that's what we do in this season? You see, God isn't looking for perfection. He's looking for a posture of humility. God does not expect perfection. 
He just desires to be in relationship that comes by posturing our lives towards humility, saying it's by you and it's for you. So how would we do that? What would it look like to choose humility and receive God's grace? Very simply, a couple things. By you. A life of humility says, God, it's by you. When you say it's by you, what happens? It aims our hearts at gratitude. And when we are grateful people, we are acknowledging that we could not do this on our own. God, that everything we have is by you. We are grateful people. You are the one who has created and owns and provides everything I have. And so here's one of the things I do to aim my life and my heart at humility and say, God, it's by you, is the first thing in the morning, I write five things I'm grateful for. The first thing. First thing, five things. Think about it that way. To say, God, it's by you. I'm gonna be grateful. First thing, write five things. And it will begin to aim your heart at gratitude, which aims your life at humility. The second thing, we say, God, it's for you. And this is a life that's generous. By you is gratitude, for you is generosity. And when we're generous people, we are putting others before ourselves. We are stooping down, we are bending low to elevate other people. And so one of the things we do is we live generous lives. We step out, not just with our stuff and with our things, what if we're generous with our love? What if we're generous with our patience? What would it look like for you to be generous in your forgiveness and your kindness in this season? A life of humility, it's by you and it's for you. By you is gratitude, for you is generosity. And God's grace honors that posture of humility. I've seen this in my own life, even in this season. I remember when this whole season broke loose about 11 weeks ago now. And I remember that at the beginning I had so much anticipation, I was living in this humility of God, I, I wanna be grateful for everything I have every moment, I wanna live generously, and there was this enthusiasm that I had, this lean about the season, the wonder about what God was doing and how I could be a part of that story that he was writing, and that lasted about four weeks. And after four or five weeks, I started to get tired, I started to, to bend inward, I started to feel like I had to clutch and grab and control. I started to wear down. And this past week, that pride was kind of rooted out by the generosity of a life group in our church. You see, last weekend, Holiday and I, my wife, we were at the campus receiving donations on Sunday. And you've seen these parades where people go celebrate birthdays and graduations and they're beautiful expressions of love. And we were there and all of a sudden this parade of cars drove in and we thought, what's happening? And they all got out and it was this life group and they had all been shopping the previous week and they opened their trunks in the back of their cars and they started unloading boxes and bags and just kind of filled this whole area with their generosity to serve other people. And we stood there just startled at the kindness and the love and the grace that was being shown through them. And not only that, we prayed over them, we, we celebrated them, we honored them, and then they drove from there. The parade went to the youth center in Orange where they went and they started cleaning. They spent the whole day cleaning this place because we know that very soon, kids from the community, especially underprivileged ones, are gonna need a place to go for summer camp as their, 
as their parents start getting back to work. And so they served all day. They brought donations. They went and they served. And I thought, this is history making. This is the kind of story that I want to write for my kids. This is the kind of story that I want to write with my family. This is the kind of story that changes the world. This is the kind of church that we want to be that's writing a story like that in the world around us. And it starts with a posture of humility. It is by you and it is for you. So what will history write about you in this season? What kind of story are you writing for your spouse or your kids or your family? What kind of story are you writing with your neighbors, your coworkers? And what kind of story are we writing as the church? I wanna invite you guys, if you would, to pray with me. And wherever you're at, I just invite you to close your eyes. And I invite you to do that just to eliminate whatever distractions may be around you, whatever may be taking place. Just close your eyes and just listen. And I invite you to listen, not so much to to my voice, but to what I believe is God's voice who's been speaking to you as you've been listening. And what would it look like for you to let go of pride? Where in your life have you believed the lie that you're the one who did it, who owns it, who makes it, and you're clutching and you're grabbing and you're holding? And where do you need to just turn that loose and say, God, it's not by me, it's not for me. It's by you and it's for you. So Father, today we thank you for your grace We thank you for your love that pursues us, for your kindness that invites us, and God, your grace that overwhelms us, that never quits, that never fails, that is always present and and whispering to us. And I believe that today there are countless people that are listening to you and being reminded of your pursuit of them with your love and with your grace and with your generosity. And so I pray that you would help them to turn loose of a life of pride and that they would take hold of a life of humility. That this week, that that they, that I, that we together would choose gratitude to say, God, my life is by you. That we would choose generosity. God, my life is for you. And watch the story that gets written in a beautiful way through our families, through our kids, through our neighbors, through this world, a story of reconciliation and redemption, a story of forgiveness and grace, a story of love and kindness and patience and unity because of who you are. We love you and we are grateful for your love for us and your grace. And we pray this in the power of your name, Jesus. Amen.